It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark, the editor, and I bring you politics. If those departments are now reshuffled or rejigged in some way or even closed down, then I think that's going to be another period of real upheaval. And, and that's a serious thing for us to consider. And culture. I was having a chat with a publisher the other day saying that it's either famine or feast. Um, she offers between £1,000 and £5,000 for a novel usually, a first novel perhaps, um, but then sometimes it can go up to £250,000. And for today's main event, we'll look at music and child prodigies. Eight-year-olds playing Chopin. Well, it's certainly impressive. But is it good for children to develop adult-level skills when they just grow up hating their parents for forcing them into it? Why are we so fixated on the idea of useful geniuses anyway? There are some children who practice for hours a day and they don't really do anything else. And then by the time they grow up, they have no friends. They don't have anything to talk about. But before we get into our main performance, we tune up with Alex Dean, our in-house politics watcher, and Samir Rahim, Prospect's culture editor. And first of all, Samir, you've been looking at that thorny question of writers and money. Now, what's the question there? There's... A survey recently been released saying that novelists in particular are earning uh, much less than they used to. The average wage for a novelist earnings from their writings is about £11,000 a year. I think that's These that. are the people who are published? People who are published, these aren't self-published writers, and this is just from their earnings from their writings, not taking into account um, everything else uh, that they might do, and indeed have to do. Um, so cue lots of complaints from authors saying that publishers' profits are up, but the people actually producing the, uh, the novels and the worker uh, are getting paid less than before. Um, certainly, I was having a chat with a publisher the other day saying that um, it's either famine or feast. Um, she offers between £1,000 and £5,000 for um, a novel, usually a first novel, perhaps. Um, but then sometimes it can go up to £250,000 right. um, if there's a big competition uh, between publishers. So we're in a pretty unhealthy situation at the moment. So as someone who knows kind of not, not too much about the publishing world, £1,000 for a first novel seems like such a small sum. It's It's almost arguably not worth doing. Yes, I think the logic is that they can just spend that amount of money, not take uh, too much of a risk, and see whether it uh, uh, sticks. 
So there's not fewer books being published. There's just more risks taken and they're just sort of chucking things out there and seeing how it goes. And I guess the hope amongst first time novelists is that kind of once they get one in one that goes down successfully, maybe they can secure a more lucrative contract. Yeah, and of course, around. it's an advance. So that's the money you get up front. Um, the, if the book's successful, you'll get royalties and you'll, you'll make money. So uh, me, I heard a little birdie told me you might be writing a novel. I mean, is this the kind of thing that would make you hesitate if there's no money to be had up front? Um, well, uh, contractual secrecy forbids me from saying how much I was paid uh, for the novel I'm, I'm, I'm doing. But um, it's safe to say that it's uh, not towards the £250,000 <laughs> uh, end. You'll be very pleased to know. Um, uh, it's, it's a bit like poets, really. Um, poets will never make any money from what they do, pretty much. Um, uh, so they'll be attached to a university or a creative writing course, uh, and they'll still write poetry. And I feel the same way about uh, novels and novelists. If they really want to write it, then then they ultimately will. Now let's uh, move from the world of um, beauty and truth to the world of politics, um, uh, Alex. Um, there's been quite a lot going on on your beat today, hasn't there, in the Brexit department especially? It's an incredibly chaotic time in British politics at the moment, and there's a huge amount we could talk about. Something that I think is particularly interesting that this current kind of newsy row has maybe brought into a little bit sharper focus is the question of what should happen to the Brexit departments after Brexit. Um, it's called DEXEU, D-E-X-E-U, Department for Exiting the European Union. Just uh, created post the Brexit vote, wasn't it? Yeah, with the Department for International Trade. They were kind of... Um, summoned up out of thin air and it was kind of an immense period of upheaval in the civil service and i think if those departments are now reshuffled or rejigged in some way or even closed down um which there's some suggestion there might be and i've spoken to a few kind of former heads of the civil service and this discussed very much as a possibility um then i think that's going to be another period of real upheaval and, and that's a serious thing for us to consider i mean it probably depends a bit doesn't it on what the status of things is in this implementational transition phase i imagine yeah so there's a huge uh, kind of technical and administrative question and lots of uncertainty there floating around and um you know i've heard stuart wood um who was kind of a chief advisor in number 10 told me he thinks that the brexit department should be wound down literally on brexit day kind of thing just as soon as we've actually left um and, and then i've heard everything in between up to some people saying you know it should go for years and years and years and just run and run um what i'm kind of more interested in is the meta question of um the civil service and and their relationship to brexit and i think we all know that brexit means maybe some chaos or at the very least upheaval for the economy um, I think we all know the same about Britain's status in the world and it, it's kind of a diplomatic relations. But I think maybe less attention has been paid to Whitehall and I think that's a shame. Interesting. Um, I was watching the football last week um, with uh, a civil servant at the Foreign Office and uh, this person was telling me that in her dealings with Dex EU um, were pretty problematic because she thought there were a lot of very ambitious people who'd moved into that department because they thought that it was where it's going to be at, as it were. But because they think they've only got a year to prove themselves, that they were being um, quite obstructionist, um, not sharing information, not being particularly cooperative with the rest of government. Yeah, um, I think there's, there's all sorts of things came to my head when you were saying that. And I think the one that I want to pick out is that what this sounds like is it sounds like you were talking to a, a civil servant uh, complaining about other civil servants and 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 that I think is indicative of the um, how fraught 
politics is at the moment and, uh, and it reminds us that no question is purely technical or purely technocratic at the moment. Everything uh, inevitably takes on a political dimension. And I think even though it sounds very abstruse and kind of something you maybe don't need to concern yourself with, what happens to these Brexit departments, actually kind of the political Brexit poison is sprinkled over the entire discussion and that means it's very fraught indeed. Thanks for that, Alex. And now over to another conversation involving Samir with the writer Suna Erden, who's been digging into the fascinating and sometimes disturbing world of child prodigies. Samir, over to you again. Thank you, Tom. I'm very pleased to be joined this morning by Suna Erdem, who has written a brilliant piece for Prospect about a fascinating subject, which is uh, musical prodigies. So these uh, little kids who are incredibly talented at playing instruments. Um, And you met a remarkable young man called Christian Lee recently. You spoke to him. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, he's only 10. Um, He's very, very small. He even plays a half-size violin. And yet on the stage, he's got this amazing presence as he would play Vivaldi's Four Seasons or um, even some modern pieces. He's just this fabulous little musician who just is very playful. Um, So when you take him off the stage, he looks like a naughty little boy who was punching his dad because he's um, saying the wrong thing to me. And then he just transforms. And he won the uh, the junior competition at the, the Menuhin uh, uh, violin uh, competition, didn't he? Um, and it was quite an extraordinary performance in the way you describe it. Yes, he's, he's very, very poised and um, he's only 10. And this is, he won the, won the junior competition, but that's for 16-year-old and under. And um, he was directing the orchestra um, as he was playing. He was interacting with everybody and he just owned the stage. Um, and so um, no wonder he won, I think... Generally, the competition judges don't necessarily want to give the prize to the absolute youngest because they've got time to grow. Um, but I, he just they felt that he just had to have the prize because he was so much better than the others. I have to say he shared the prize with a grand old um, 11-year-old girl <laughs> who unfortunately is being overshadowed now because she would have been the youngest winner. As it is, he shared and he's the youngest winner. And there are more and more of these um, astonishingly talented uh, young people around. I mean, um, is this something that we should be celebrating or is it or is it perhaps slightly slightly worrying in some ways? It's a mixture of both, really. I think um, children are specialising a lot and there's a real focus, particularly in the East Asian families where quite a few of these prodigies come from. There's a lot of focus um, on musical excellence, which brings these children, it gives them a status symbol, really, and um, and um, they can differentiate themselves from others. So there is a certain amount of pushing, which can be quite harmful. Um, There are some children who practice for hours a day and they don't really do anything else. And then by the time they grow up, they have no friends, they don't have anything to talk about, and they probably don't end up being professional musicians because they've burned out or they they were just sort of gymnastic show ponies. They weren't necessarily amazing musicians. On the other hand, there's particularly in the West, in the UK, in America, in to Europe to a certain extent, there's a pulling back from um, encouraging people to participate in music and there's um, a pulling back from, you know, if children don't show promise immediately, they just pull them away and they don't say there's no point. And in that sense, I think it's great to have great young little musicians for people to look up to and want to emulate, provided they are managed properly. Well, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? They're playing pieces and competing essentially at the same level as 
as adults, aren't they? Um, you know, we have someone, if, you ever, if you're a footballer, you might be incredibly talented at six or seven, spotted, and then join an academy or a, or a club or whatever. But you're not going to be competing at the World Cup. Um, if you have a great, talented music, uh, mathematician, for example, they're not going to be competing in the same level of, as an adult. But the prime, you know, a primary school child can, can be better than a 20 or 30-year-old. So that leads to a sort of very odd dynamic, doesn't it? It does. It does for everybody, really. I mean, the child can go and perform these sort of gymnastics with their fingers or when they're playing violin or piano. And um, some of them can play that with great uh, understanding. But then they go to school and people at school don't know who Rachmaninoff is. And yet when they're with their peers, musical peers, they can't talk to them about what it's like to be six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever they are. And so it's very distancing from them. And in terms of the musical world, um, I think partly because classical music gets such a, it's, it's, it's not so popular as people would like it to be, maybe, let's say that. And um, so if you get a young musician, um, they're a good ambassador for music. And so then they get pushed forward, which isn't always a great thing musically or for the child. It's understandable, of course, but um, it's, uh, it's a double-edged sword, really. I think it needs to be managed somehow. Well, how can we have these 10-year-olds who are playing pieces about heartbreak and life experience or, or the rest of it? There's a kind of ring of falsity, I find, to it, in the sense that they seem to be performing the emotions rather than living through them, if you see what I mean. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's um, one person I spoke to, um, Susan Rivers, for my uh, story, who um, gives, she's a chief executive of a charity that gives... Um, funding to young musicians and they have a lower limit of 20 and they say that there's no point in funding a child that's much younger and encouraging them to go on stage when they haven't lived they haven't had their hearts broken they haven't gone to a museum and experienced looking at the paintings and imagining they just haven't lived and I think that is um is a danger for them there was a a story I read about another prodigy prodigy who said that he was um, able to... When you're a child, you can imagine stories, um, the fairy tales. So that takes you to a certain level. You use your imagination, but then you run out of that. And just turning to something a little bit more personal, I mean, tell me a little bit about your own experiences with um, music and uh, learning instruments. I mean, did you start start early on? Um, I didn't, actually. I used to live in Turkey, uh, where in a small village where I didn't have the opportunity to learn. So I came to England at, in secondary school and I started to play the piano at 11. And I found it profoundly irritating that I would go to a music festival and I would either be the oldest in my grade group or the lowest level <laughs> in my age group. And it just really annoyed me. And so I thought when my children when I had children and they showed interest in music, well, I'm going to start them nice and early and they will then be quite young and they'll enjoy being better than other people. Um, so they both started playing the piano about five and and they're not, they, they play three instruments, they love playing, but they're not going to be prodigies. I mean, I, we haven't put in the hours, none of them, none of us really. But then I find that when you look around, they're still not the youngest and then you think, well, maybe this, <laughs> Trying to be the youngest is a bit of a silly endeavour, really, because unless you're going to be lang lang, um, yeah. what is the point? You can just enjoy it, just be the best you can and um, take pleasure out of it as a hobby. 
It's about balance as well, isn't it? I mean, uh, you worry about the musicians, the young musicians who are only doing music and uh, not only for the quality of the performance, but also just their sort of life experience and um, the fact that people can come to things a lot later in life, I think is quite reassuring, isn't it? It is, it is. Our music seems to be, particularly piano and violin, I think other instruments, you can be older, but these two instruments seem to require people to start quite young to get very proficient. But you're right, if you don't have the experience, um, then it, you don't have anything to reflect. Absolutely. I mean, my own musical education was uh, non-existent, basically. We didn't really listen to music um, much at all in the house, certainly not classical music. And uh, at school, it, you know, dropped it as early as possible and it was just nothing really and then when I turned 30 I started going to concerts going to opera in particular in particular and started to get interested in it um, and actually in the last sort of two or three months I've started to learn how to play the piano um, now you know starting at age 37 um, it's maybe um, it is obviously too late for any kind of uh, 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 special skills to be developed but it, it, I find it a very enjoyable personal um practice you know it's both relaxing and also a different kind of test and it allows you to expand different kinds of uh uh you know expands your mind and makes you think in slightly different ways i think um and i think that sort of amateur aspect to it is is really important to to keep up isn't it? not only for people's personal enjoyment but because ultimately um people like me and others more proficient you know with with the fans you know with people who who go to the concerts and listen to the records yes and without the fans you don't get anywhere of course because what's the point of being amazing if there's no one to watch you um i think there's a trend actually of people returning to music i remember reading a piece someone in the article quoted um carl jung and said that you know people when they um, when they grow up and all the requirements to become a successful adult and go to work and have children, it suppresses part of you. Mm. And that actually when you go back, when you start playing music, it um, brings that out again. So you're almost returning to your, your soul. It gives you a form of expression. And I think that's amazing. Do you still play? On and off. <laughs> I never got to grade eight, um, which I blame on my ridiculously late starting. <laughs> um, so I always fancied that I'd go back and do that. So every so often I buy the grade eight book and I play half a piece and um, don't have time. But the ambition remains. Alan Rusbridger, the former Guardian editor, wrote a, an interesting book a couple of years ago about um, returning to music. And somebody even with a with as high pressure job as him would play, you know, half an hour every morning and learn how to how to do it, how to do something. So maybe there's hope for all of us. I hope so. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing discipline. I mean, I do sit down at the piano and I realise that actually playing these scales is quite hard and I have to apply myself. I don't remember, or I don't think of anything else. I don't remember the anxiety I have about my job or my children's grades or anything. I'm just thinking about that. And I think that's something that we don't really do in our lives, not in our professional lives these days. Replaced by the anxiety of hitting the right note. That's and, uh, a great anxiety, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose the, um, the consequences aren't so bad, are they? So you discuss in the piece how there's this sense of um, uh, music being a status symbol for certain families, um, particularly among um, uh, East Asian families. Could you tell us a bit more, more about that? Um, yes, I did um, interview someone who was who had dealings with a lot of families with prodigies who came to buy violins from him. And he said it's a real drive. They've got 
um, part after the Cultural Revolution, I suppose, this music that was suppressed has come back up. And it's seen as this amazing Western thing that they can do to separate themselves and separate their children and show off. So, And it can come f- become anything from your know, child showing off at a little concert to a glittering career. But along the way, even if the child doesn't become a prodigy, they become noticed. They, If it's a girl, they might have a good match you know and in fact this um, interview did point out that quite often they encourage the girls more than the boys so it's obviously made them more marriageable in a way that um, you might have been in Jane Austen day when you would have been a an accomplished young lady so that's quite important but in China particularly they've the government's pouring money into it it's encouraged anyway by the parents they have the work ethic they have the understanding of music so when you have that someone who succeeds in that area it's sort of they're succeeding in a very valued um, industry and maybe that's less so here but I think as a parent even when my my 13 year old son if he goes and performs in the school concert and people go oh my word you get a real kick out of it. It's probably just living vicariously through the children, but it's it's a kick, and I think it's seen as a high art in maybe you know greater status symbol everywhere than say becoming an amazing footballer. Well, that's interesting because there's much more rewards in pop music or being a footballer, but classical music still has retained um, that level of cachet, hasn't it? That level of um, uh, the sense in which um, it's got this aura of privilege, hasn't it? And maybe that's what the, the, the Chinese are trying to sort of access as well, isn't it? Yes, I think so. I mean, the problem that actually advocates of classical music have to deal with is that it's seen as elitist. But on the other side, it does have you know, these lovely concert halls, these opera houses. So it gives off this aura of something amazing. And so it's inevitably parents think that that's a higher level of achievement. And I guess because of the age of the parents, it's probably they can understand it a bit better than a, um, pop music stardom. What do psychologists say about the phenomena of the prodigy? Um, well, there are a couple of psychologists who um, study this phenomena quite a lot. And one of them is um, Gary McPherson, who's uh, an, an Australian. And, and he says that actually there is going to be a prodigy at every three to five million people. Um, who will come out naturally, who will have this innate ability, the understanding of the idiom. So in that sense, it puts it into perspective, you know, these prodigies aren't all pushed to um, within an inch of their lives. They are, there is a natural seam here. Um, and there's another uh, psychologist, an American, Andrew Solomon, who's written a book about, well, about um, unusual children, actually. He ranks prodigies as similar to disability in a way and in his book he's got um, children who are autistic children who have got down syndrome children who are murderers and he says they're as different from normal society as that kind of child and um, I mean there's a the latin for the prodigy comes from latin word um, prodigium which means a monster that violates the natural order and that's um, Andrew Solomon's thinking so it's it's something that the parents don't even understand sometimes. Yeah, so far from them, some of them pushing them to extremes, they're, they're, they're landed with this remarkable child and that some of them don't really know what to do with them. Yes, exactly. And um, some of them sort of tearing their hairs out, hair out because they don't know whether they need to push them or to not push them. And either doing too much of either can harm the child. And it's interesting that they say just as there isn't a huge understanding of autism yet, even when it's... Um, talked about so much there's not an understanding of this 
prodigious talent for music. And uh, it'll take a long time for people to learn how to deal with it. Thank you, Suna. Thank you. That was my colleague Samir Rahim speaking to the writer Suna Erdem. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tom Clark, the producer with Jay Elwes. And as I mentioned earlier, Suna's article on all those 10-year-olds playing Beethoven is featured in our August issue, which also contains a very healthy dose of politics. In our cover story this time, we're going to look at what happens if Brexit grinds to a halt. Buy a copy and find out what the thinkers are thinking there. Or if you prefer, you can read that and Suna's article on our brilliant website, www.prospectmagazine.co.uk. And while you're there, I'm sure you'll notice that our subscription rates are eminently reasonable. Tune in next week to the Prospect Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.